there I stood, scratching my head with a confused look on my face. If someone drew a cartoonish picture of me at that moment, there would be question marks floating around my cranium. I'd ask the same question, this time to a different person, with the same result. How does the stock market work? (laughs) Have you ever asked someone what you thought was a simple question, only to be utterly baffled by the depth and complexity of the answer? Uh, Perhaps you asked a brain surgeon how he determined where to make the incision, or a nuclear physicist to explain to you how atoms are constructed. Once they started talking, you found yourself completely mystified. You were looking for an explanation along the lines of the Science for Dummies book series, only to discover fairly rapidly that there are some subjects that apparently are not suited for dummies to learn. You've seen these books, right? Uh, Dating for Dummies, Ferrets for Dummies, Windows 8.1 for Dummies. You ever wonder why there's no rocket science for dummies? Because that's an oxymoron. Today, we are all asking a simple question. Is there a Daniel 9, 20 through 27 for dummies? We want someone to explain the meaning of this prophecy, prophecy to us on a level that we can understand. And I hate to tell you this, but there, there is no Daniel for Dummies book. So maybe that settles it. We're all going to leave today scratching our head with a confused look on our face. Maybe we're all going to leave today thinking this text simply cannot be understood by people like us. Maybe this is one of those passages that is simply not accessible to ordinary people or dummies like us. One scholar I read said these verses are the most difficult and confusing verses in Daniel. Miller takes it a step further and says that they are the most controversial and contested verses in the whole Bible. Montgomery, another Old Testament expert, is perhaps the most colorful when he refers to this text as a dismal swamp. The commentators agree that this is the most difficult Old Testament text. And that is where the agreement stops. They disagree on every other aspect. And you may ask, then, Kyle, why in the world would you choose to teach this? Well, we do something here called expository preaching. We preach through entire books of the Bible without jumping over verses. And these verses are up next to bat. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God. And if you neglect any one book or passage, then you neglect teaching about God that is vital for your spiritual growth. So we don't cherry-pick for the easy passages. Expository preaching also makes the teacher of the Bible a student of the Bible. I would have never chosen to preach Daniel 9. It's a tough passage, and I have enough tough things going on. I'm already dealing with a building project during COVID-19. I mean, those things alone have me aging in dog years. One One of our precious families... We're pointing out all the new gray hairs in my beard after service last Sunday. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, someone saw a picture of Sarah and I in our home and said to her, Wow, you guys were babies back then. Look how young you two were. And she said, That was just five years ago. <laughs> it's great to pastor an honest church. And let me add, it's great to pastor a church that expects to be fed. I love this church. I love that you know what the primary responsibility of a pastor is. My job is to feed the flock, not to please the consumer. Our practical at all cost culture has crept into many churches and it panders 
after a lighter content and a fluffy atmosphere. Put smiles on people's faces. But I want to teach you how to lament, how to mourn, how to have hope in distressing circumstances. We want to challenge you to understand the deep things of God. The second reason we are teaching this text is because we want to teach you how to interpret and have conversations about obscure passages. This is really an obscure passage. There are some who attempt to make it the central passage in Daniel, but it's not. This is usually where a lot of people start pulling out their end times charts. They dig for it. They're like, it's somewhere in here in all my doomsday prepper supplies. By the way, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand Christian preppers. Non-Christian, yes, but not Christian. Sarah and I went to a pastor's house in Ohio. You remember that? And he was a, he was a prepper. If the end of the world happens, I don't want to be living in a bomb shelter, drinking my own urine. That's a, that's a hard pass for me. I think I'll just die and be with Christ. I think you can teach the whole book of Daniel without crazy end times charts. You do it by focusing on the central message of each prophecy. You don't miss the forest for the so many confusing trees. Every passage in the Bible is equally inspired, but not all are equally inspiring. And this is one of those passages. And along the same lines, not all passages are equally plainly understood. People argue about this passage all the time. Good people. People who know their Bibles. Some of my closest friends disagree on this. In 400 AD, one of the most brilliant scholars and linguists in the ancient church, Jerome, when he preached this passage, he listed nine conflicting opinions on the meaning of the text, declaring himself unable to decide which one, if any, was correct. And I actually thought about taking that approach, giving you 70 interpretations to the 70 weeks, but I didn't think you'd be well served by that treatment. So I want us to walk through these verses humbly and carefully. To tread softly where the ice is thin and to tread confidently where the ice is solid. I'm going to echo Alistair Begg when he playfully but wisely said, I'm giving you my interpretation this morning. However, I reserve the right to change my mind tonight. <laughs> Further, I reserve the right to change my mind tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and any other time. Friends, we are not going to unravel every complexity in the passage. But we will bring home the central message. And I've done enough talking around the text, let's step into it. The central message of the passage is twofold. And the first part is this, God hears you and loves you. God hears you and loves you. Now allow me to catch you up to chapter 9 with just a, a few sentences. Uh, Daniel was a captive POW in Babylon. He's been there for 68 years. The Medo-Persian kingdom just defeated the Babylonian kingdom and they inherited all the POWs. So Daniel is now in the first year of the reign of Darius. And he opens his Bible up to Jeremiah and he reads where God has predicted this captivity. Who would take him captive and that the return would happen in 70 years. He'd be going back home. So the Bible drives Daniel to prayer. And he begins pouring out his heart, bearing his sins and the sins of his people, Israel, and then as he's pouring out his heart, bearing his sins, notice what happens in verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. At the time, 
of the evening sacrifice. This angel interrupts Daniel in the middle of his prayer. And Gabriel must have been one of those hovering angels. Like we see the seraphim hovering around the throne in Isaiah 6. They were hovering there waiting until the commandment comes out of the throne. And as soon as the commandment comes, they're dispatched. And Gabriel tells Daniel, verse 23, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. As soon as Daniel prayed, at the beginning of his prayer, God dispatched Gabriel. And God is reassuring Daniel, Daniel, I hear you. And God is telling us by this event that he always hears our prayers immediately. Is that not what God tells us in 1 Peter 3, 12? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. God's ear is bent toward his children. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Don't believe the lie that your words disintegrate in the air before reaching God. No, he hears them. God hears our prayers and he answers them. We may not always get the answers we want. Daniel is about to receive an answer, but it's not exactly the one he wanted. Daniel was praying for a permanent physical restoration, but God was planning a permanent spiritual restoration. Notice the phrase, came to me in swift flight. It teaches us that angels are not omnipresent, but they can move quickly. So Gabriel, I'll call him Gabe, Gabe is swooping in like a bird. And notice Daniel throwing this in at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. A time when back in the land of Israel, when the temple was functioning, a lamb would have been slain for the sins of the people and offered up as a sacrifice to God. This was God's ancient pedagogy. He is teaching that there must be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And it's interesting that Daniel mentions the time, the evening sacrifice, three o'clock. He prays at three o'clock. There there had been no evening sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem since 586 B.C. when it was destroyed. It's been 68 years since Daniel's dad took him by one hand and the lamb by the other hand and practiced evening sacrifices. Nevertheless, Daniel still tells time according to his religious calendar. He still functions on Jerusalem time. Daniel Daniel at 80 plus years has not lost his spiritual identity. Yahweh's clock is his clock. And at three, it's a fitting time to be confessing his sin. Notice the end of verse 23. I have come to tell it to you. This is Gabriel. The message from God. I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. God's chief purpose in these verses was not to give his people end times charts. It was to encourage his enslaved people. And however we interpret this passage, and we're about to get into the swamp here in a little bit. However we interpret this passage, we must see it as good news. In the heat of our eschatological debates, we must never forget these passages were not given to make us angry. They were given to us to make us cry. God loves us. 
for those of you who are contemplating suicide, you need to know God hears you and loves you. For those of you who are consistently disappointing those who depend on you, your spouse, your family, your kids, your employers, you disappoint them all, you need to know God loves you. For those of you praying for a spouse and Gabriel hasn't dropped him or her in your lap yet, you need to know God hears you. For those of you whose marriage is a train wreck, God hears you and loves you. Even when you're unable to construct a complete sentence, God hears your inaudible heart. The central message is twofold. God hears you and loves you. And secondly, God has you and your future in his hands. Daniel's praying. And and remember, he's saying 70 years is nearly over. God, 70 years, 70 years. Thank you, God. Bring me out of this horrible place. Deliver my people from a horrible future. 70 years is over. Then Gabriel swoops in and he tells Daniel, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your city. Now, this is bad news, but prepare yourself for a hermeneutical roller coaster. All right, this is where we're going to get into it. Where you stand on this verse will determine how you deal with the rest of the text. And there are three options. Option number one, the 70 weeks is actually 70 weeks. Now, virtually no scholar believes that the translation should read weeks because Gabe lists a massive number of events that will take place during this time period. They will throttle rebellion, stop sin, wipe out crime, set things right forever, confirm what the prophet saw, and that's a short time for all that to occur. So no conservative scholar believes 70 weeks is actually 70 weeks. That's option one. Option two, 70 weeks actually refers to 70 years. 70 years. In the Hebrew, it's literally the words 70 sevens. You may want to write that under 70 weeks. It's literally in Hebrew, 70 sevens. And this is why weeks is a, is a bad translation. The word's just, it's, it's not there. And, and the majority of the scholars hold to option number two. 70 years... So 70 sevens, 70 years times seven. So that's a period of 490 years. And so Gabriel says, yes, the 70 years are over, but there are 70 sets of seven before it's really over. Daniel, it's going to continue seven times longer than you expected. Now, what is Gabriel talking about? Is he saying that God's going to back out on his promise because he says my people is going back in 70 years? No, Daniel's people will return back to their land when the 70 years is up, just like God promised. Cyrus released the captives to their homeland. They will restore, rebuild Jerusalem. We have historical and biblical evidence of this. What Gabriel is saying is 70 times 7, not just when your deportation ends, but when all deportations end. Not just when your pain stops, but when all pain stops. Not just when the Jews go home, but when all my children Go to their heavenly home. So, so let me summarize it. Daniel is praying, and he's reading Jeremiah 70 years, and, he, and he's excited. Okay, he's excited. It is finished. It is finished. We bore your wrath, God, for 70 years, the penalty for our sin. We have salvation now. It is finished. That's why he's confessing sin at 3 o'clock. Daniel is longing to be made right with God by a sacrificial lamb. And surely the 70 years was like a metaphorical lamb. 
But the 70 years didn't make Daniel right with God. And so God says through the 77's vision, he's saying, my divinely imposed period of judgment is longer than 70 years. My divinely imposed period of judgment is 77's. I poured out my judgment on you for 70 years, but my wrath isn't satisfied. It's not appeased. There's not enough repenting, crying, lamenting, good deeds, sin resisting in 70 years to make up for my people's sin against my holiness. And I want you to notice in verse 24, there are six actions that will take place during this entire 77's period. The first three are negative, the second three are positive. You'll notice in the text, they're each marked by an infinitive two, if you have a, a good translation there. So notice the six. Transgressions will be finished, one. Two, the end to sin is made. Three, this is a big one, atonement for iniquity will take place. Four, everlasting righteousness is to be brought in. Five, vision and prophecy will be sealed up. Six, the most holy place. Um, the, the word place is not in the Hebrew there. It could be person. So I think the most holy one will be anointed. So you just read these six things. A small child with only a limited knowledge and understanding of the Bible could read this and immediately respond, this is talking about Jesus and what he will do for us. Christ brings all six blessings. Now that's, this option number two is basically saying 490 years and Christ will come and do all these things. Now that's a simplified version of that. There's a gap in it, but... 490 years, Christ will come and do all these things. So if you hold to this position, you can substitute some words here and make the reading easier to understand. So I'm going to give you some numbers here. Feel feel free to write them in. Verse 24, 70 weeks. You you could write there 490 years, because that's 70 times 7. 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish their transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Now verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So this is when the people are going back. Daniel's people are going back. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. A prince, there shall be seven weeks, that's 49 years. 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, so that's 62 times 7, 434 years. For 434 years it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Notice verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, that's 434 years, an appointed one shall be cut off. Now, if you add up these two numbers, 49 years and 434 years, then it equals 483 years. And we're still short seven years. Well, then that's where uh, verse 27 comes in. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That is seven years. Seven years. So then, all right, this view number two. And then you've got some pastors who produce a chart, charted timelines like this. Now, I, I, I do charts, but <laughs> these people hold PhD in chart making. I mean, they use a chart to illustrate that they've completely figured out the timeline of Daniel and where it matches history. And they can get it down to the very day when the decree was issued by Nehemiah to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, to 69 sevens later, 483 years later, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now, 
sometimes they have to use the, the 360 day Jewish year instead of the 365 lunar day year to, to make it, but they make it. Some manage even to get it down to the exact day of the birth of Christ. How, how they know the exact day, I don't know. Uh, uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And what I'm saying is I am not downing this position. If you grew up in church, this is probably, this is probably the, the way you were taught. I'm not downing this position. I think it's, it could absolutely be right. I have tremendous respect for people who hold to this. And I know that I make fun of crazy end times charts a lot. But, but this one is actually, um, this, this one could be legit. It's not, not one of those crazy, crazy ones. I just don't hold to that. If you're a dispensationalist, you, you probably do. And we have many in our church. You, you would insert a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, between verses 26 and 27. And that's how you'd make the math work. Um, when we get to heaven, and if I find out option two was right, and I was wrong this entire time, I'll concede and I'll apologize to you. But until then, <laughs> I'm going to go with option three. Uh, before I give you my position, let me just break down these verses for you. Let's consider uh, verse 24 through 27 in this way. Verse 24 covers the entire period. That's the 77s. So this is an umbrella statement. Verse 24 is the umbrella statement, and then you've got verse 25, 26, 27 that are going to fall under that. Verse 25 divides the first 69 sevens, or probably in your translation, the first 69 weeks. Verse 26 describes the final seven, the, the 70th week in indefinite terms. And verse 27 describes the final seven in more detail. Now, here's, here's my view. Some of you will strongly disagree with me, and that's, that's fine. This is an open-hand issue. This is not a closed-hand issue. I think the, the 77s is symbolic. And you respond, well, Kyle, you're just saying that because you hated math in school. And you just, you're, you're too lazy to do the hard work of math and figuring all this out. I already did the hard work of math and figured it out. I loved math in school. It was my favorite subject. I just see option two as a bit of reading back into the text and making the math work. Uh, in apocalyptic literature such as Daniel and the book of Revelation, the numbers are often symbols. And we should keep in mind that the number seven in the Bible is a symbolic number. Seven is the number for completion. Seven is the number for perfection. God finished creation in seven days. The number 70, all right, this is big. The number 70 used with the number 7 has happened before in the Bible. When, Jesus, when Peter asked Jesus if he should forgive someone as many as 7 times, Jesus responded, not 7 times, but I tell you, 70 times 7. Matthew 18, 22. Jesus did not mean that literally that you have to forgive someone 490 times and then you're good. You don't have to forgive them the 491st time. No, he's saying you should always be ready to forgive. It was a symbolic, 70 times 7. So I see 77s as a symbol of complete, full, perfect period of time. A perfect period of, of, of judgment. Now, I am not forcing the word weeks in here because I don't think it's there. I'm not forcing the word years in there because although many of my heroes hold to this, I just I don't see it in there. I don't think Daniel sat down and tried to figure out this, this algorithm of, of different years. Now, I, I could be wrong. But, but even with my view, I still see all the miraculous fulfillments, even though I take it as symbolic. 
I still see Cyrus releasing the captives to go back to Jerusalem. I still see Ezra and Nehemiah issuing decrees to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus predicted it before. Titus destroyed Jerusalem in, in uh, AD 70. Is it AD 70 or 70 AD? What's the correct way to say that? AD 70. AD, ask our historian over here, resident historian. AD 70. So I see all these predictions as fulfilled. I just don't feel like I have to work them into a 490-year period to make it happen. Now, we're going to have a panel discussion after the second service, and that panel will be released at 4 o'clock, and you're going to probably hear some pushback on my stance here. And that's okay, because we may disagree on an open-hand issue, but we will agree on the closed-hand issue. Let's fast forward some 500 years. Fast forward 500 years. We're in Jerusalem. It's a little before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The priests are preparing for the evening sacrifices, Three o'clock. It's Passover. The Old Testament priests were, were butchers. They, they, they stood in, in bloodbaths. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in one Passover year, A.D. 66, over a quarter of a million lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. Lambs were everywhere. At precisely three in the afternoon, tens of thousands of lambs will be killed. Now something else is happening on this day 500 years later that that I failed to tell you. Since 12 noon, Jesus has been hanging on the cross. Since 12 noon, it's been completely dark in the middle of the day. And then the clock strikes 3 p.m. All the lambs are being slain. Luke, the gospel writer, says at that exact time, Jesus died on the cross. For the previous 1,200 years, the priest would blow a ram's horn at 3 p.m. the moment the lambs were sacrificed. Daniel would hear this growing up, and as he's praying in this prayer, he's, he's no doubt imagining that, that sound of the ram's horn blowing. On this day, I'm talking about 500 years later, another horn screamed out of the darkness. And he said, It is finished. No lamb ever forgave actual sins. The animals never never really finished the job. They were road signs pointing to someone who would come and be the lamb. And God tells Israel that these animals would one day be summed up, be fulfilled in one grand substitute, one full and final lamb. At 3 p.m., God killed. God killed the full and final lamb. The lamb that was shed for the sins of the world. Now all those other lambs would no longer be needed because who they were pointing to had arrived. The perfect lamb was crucified. Now let's go back. At three in the afternoon, Daniel experienced the 77s. On this day in Luke, at three in the afternoon, Jesus delivered the 77s. The complete, perfect, full sacrifice. The one who makes all the wrongs right. And do you remember in that list of six things, I think it was in verse 24, that will happen during this period of time? It's a big list of six things, infinitive two in front of them. The third one was the atonement for sin. And I know that the blood atonement is offensive to, to some of you. It's a hard concept to understand. You may identify with the worship pastor Michael Gungor who said, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering his son. 
What type of father would do that? I want to teach you a theological word. The word is propitiation. God's wrath has been satisfied. Sins atoned for. Seventy-sevens made complete through Christ. Perfect judgment of God happened on Calvary. And that, friends, is that's why we sing bloody songs. We may disagree about the smaller things in the passage, but we can agree that the things promised in the 77s isn't possible without a Messiah named Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Jesus didn't fulfill all six of these blessings at his first coming. But he will finish the list at his second coming when he fully and finally puts an end to sin forever. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.